Well, great to be with you, church. Good morning. And uh, today we finish our series uh, through the book of 1 Samuel. But before we go there, uh, a question I want for us to consider, and it's this. Why all the time in the Old Testament? Why the time in the Old Testament? I mean, the Old Testament, thousands of years old, uh, what relevance does it have? And, and uh, we've just spent uh, four months, and let me kind of, uh, if you don't know, let me kind of do some history look back, and was adding some figures up together, and that is that uh, we had spent five months in 2009, a long time ago, through the book of Exodus. We then spent uh, two months in 2010 through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, we then had seven months in 2013 through Joshua. That was right before we moved into this facility. And then we had six months in 2016 through the book of Judges. Four months in 2018 through first and second, or through the first half of First Samuel. And then uh, after this summer, we're going to be doing a, a First Peter series here starting next week. And then after the summer, we're going to be spending three and a half more months. Uh, studying all of 2 Samuel, it all adds up to two and a half years of our 13 years in Old Testament narratives on the weekends. And it's like, why all that time in the Old Testament? Why 20% of our time on Sundays are we spending in the Old Testament? And that's a great question to ask, and I'm really glad you asked that question. Because uh, before we dive in and close out this series, I just want to remind us why we spend the time in the Old Testament uh, in, at, at portions that we do. Three reasons uh, I'll put on the table. One is because all of God's word is valuable and profitable. All of it. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that is referencing not just New Testament, that's rest, uh, referring to all of the Bible. It's not saying certain portions are better than other portions. It's saying all Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is useful and profitable. It also is saying not just my favorite hobby horse texts are the most inspired texts of Scripture. It's not saying that the ones I love the most, it's not even saying that the ones that might have present uh, uh, application to socially relevant issues of our day are the most important. It's not saying that. All of Scripture is God-breathed, and all of Scripture is useful. And in fact, I'll add to that, just to emphasize with the Old Testament out of Romans 15, 4, where it says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And that's Romans writing, New Testament, when it's being pulled together, really referring to Old Testament. Hey, the Old Testament is applicable, the Old Testament is useful, the Old Testament helps us to understand it is valuable and profitable. Second reason, because the gospel story of Jesus Christ is wrapped around the whole story. Because the gospel story is wrapped around the whole story. I'm just going to say it this way. If someone really doesn't have a grasp of the beginning, like Genesis... And if someone really doesn't have a, uh, some sense of grasp of what's ahead, like Revelation, I'm not saying we have to be masters at it, we have to understand all, but if we just don't know that or spend time with that, we really don't understand the whole story that we live in. And, and frankly, no wonder oftentimes uh, people are wandering around like we're lost in a story. 
No, there is a story, and the story is available to us to understand beginning, present, and ending. And when we understand that story, as we move into understanding that story, the fullness of the gospel becomes even more relevant and real. And I'm committed to us growing in the story. By the way, I'll make note, Jesus. Jesus oftentimes made, took people back to the Old Testament. Why did he take them back to the Old Testament? To help them understand that what the Old Testament said, he is the fulfillment of it. Uh, Paul, in his methodology in reaching Gentiles, Paul would go into a city, go into the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and they would essentially open the scriptures, which at that time was the Old Testament, and Paul would discuss with them, showing them that Jesus is the one, the ultimate. Listen, the Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus. And having an understanding of it helps us understand the gospel increasingly so. So it's because all God's word is valuable and profitable. It's because the gospel story is wrapped around the whole story of scripture. And a third one I'm going to put as far as just present day uh, applicatory reality. Because I am concerned that we have an increasing Bible illiteracy among people and God's people. And when we don't understand the whole of Scripture, we're going to miss so much of what the gospel is all about. And people, God's people, even in our culture, are sadly increasingly becoming illiterate in what this has to say. Just give me tiny little snippets. I'll patch together, I'll patch together in nice topical little packages so that I can do my thing. And what ends up happening is this becomes all about me, becomes all about self. But God has a story, and we're in that story, and how we fit in that story. And so I'll say it this way. Hey, we may do some things really well around here, and we may do some things really not so well around here. But there's one non-negotiable that we got to be at the center of the target. And that is that we are going to be a people who are about this. Because if we are off this, we are off. And we want to be a people about God's word, growing in it, understanding it. That's why even with the New Testament class, growing in our understanding of what's going on, written for our instruction. So why the Old Testament? There you go. Those are three reasons. And so we, now we're going to dive into it and finish our series in 1 Samuel. Would you open your Bibles and when you turn, actually turn to 1 Samuel 9. I want to begin there. 1 Samuel 31, the chapter that we're going to read here in just a minute, is all about the conclusion of King Saul's life. It's the demise and the final demise of Saul. But to, before we go there, I think it's just important that we get a couple snippets of understanding where Saul has come from. I want to begin in 1 Samuel 9. Uh, the Lord is saying this to Samuel. Uh, now, uh, verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came... Okay, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince of my people Israel. And uh, get this, he shall save my people from the land of the Philistines. You got to remember that because what ends up happening in chapter 31, I'm already giving away the story. The Philistines take his life. The very thing that God wanted Saul to be about is the very thing that turns upside down and ends up taking his life. 
And he goes on, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. We saw Saul come into earlier in a prior series in the first half of Samuel, Saul coming in as king. Remember that? Samuel then says, there's this one that's to be anointed. And it's like, where is Saul? Where's the good looking, tall, six pack ab hunky looking dude that, uh, where is he so that we can anoint him? And he was hiding in the baggage. Remember, I loved that. I love that because Saul wasn't the guy who's like, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. He wasn't that way. Listen, you don't want that kind of guy to be the king because he's generally going to be all about himself. But the sad story is, is Saul ends up becoming all about himself. So go to 1 Samuel 15, a little bit of more background on him. Uh, Saul is, is king, uh, things are beginning to turn not so great with him. It started out well, but it's not going as well. Chapter 15, verse 1, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way. When they came up out of Egypt... Amalek was the king of the Amalekites. Verse three, now go and strike Amalek or strike the Amalekites and devote to destruction all that they had. Do not spare them, uh, but take them out. And it's here then where Saul doesn't do what the Lord is. No, let's keep the good ones. Let, let, let's, let's keep the good things because a uh, human standpoint, it, it would be useful. And we see this beginning demise of Saul and his character and his commitment. And here it's with the Amalekites. Go to chapter 28. Chapter 28. Saul is in this freaky part of his life. And he's in this seance here with the witch of Endor. And the deceased Samuel shows up. That's got to freak you out, right? Samuel shows up and, and verse 17 says, uh, the Lord has done to you as he spoke to me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. This is a dead Samuel saying that. In other words, tomorrow uh, they will die. And the Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Do you see how everything's gone upside down? In the beginning, God is saying, hey, Samuel, I want you to anoint one who's going to become prince of Israel and he's going to put uh, the Philistines in, in the rightful place and not uh, battling against Israel. And, now, and then we find out, uh, Saul, uh, go take the Amalekites out because they're enemies of Yahweh as well and, and, and in all of that. And, and then what ends up happening is, is Saul doesn't do any of it. He only goes part way and even that all becomes bad. And we have it all the way here to where we hear this words that uh, Samuel says to Saul, tomorrow you and your sons and your men are going to die. And we come to chapter 31. Today, a graveyard and a sunrise. And here is the graveyard. Chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel Okay, got the picture with some background now? The Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines 
and fell slain at Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa, Gilboa is kind of a little bit north. I don't know if you remember the map from the prior couple of weeks. It's above Philistine territory in the Valley of Jezreel. Verse 2, And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines, they struck down Jonathan. That's sad. And Abinadab, and Melshishua, the sons of Saul i.e., just as Samuel had said. Verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword, thrust it through me, uh, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Uh, One of the things sometimes we don't understand with a comment like that is we kind of get socially relevant, which, okay, fine, to a certain point on the issue of suicide. But actually, you've got to understand this is taking place in military battle. And this is actually in that kind of situation. This is what was normally done. This is actually what people were trained to do. When you are overtaken, and instead of the enemy taking you and, and, and uh, making a mockery of you and, and all that goes along with that, okay, got the picture, as ugly as that is, kill yourself. It's kind of like watching a Jason Bourne movie or whatever Mission Impossible movie and, and someone's like, right before they catch you, you know, they bite the pill and they die. It's that. And that's what Saul's doing here. I'm done. It's over. It's out. Uh, thrust the sword through me and kill me. And the armor bearer's like, I don't want to do that. It says that in Hebrew, verse 7. And when the men of Israel were on the other side of the valley, um, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Verse 5, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Verse 6, thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer And all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley of those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. It's all falling apart. And the Philistines came and lived in them. In other words, the Philistine army came in and lived in the Israelite territory. It was not supposed to be this way. Verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, get the plunder, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they do what they did anyway. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Why would they be doing that? This is just what a broken world does. It takes victory over conquering someone else and crushing them. Oh, by the way, we're going to see here in just a second on top of that. What they also do, and particularly back in this day, what would take place is that the victory is not only a victory for them, but it's kind of a pronouncement of whose gods are better than the other gods. And so what really goes on here is we're going to see that they go and they, they post all this and they hang all this stuff and they're making merry and joy out of the fact that their gods are stronger than, put it in the context, than Yahweh. By the way, how, much, how that must have grieved God with all that's taking place. Verse 10. They put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth like their God conquered the king. And they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan, the wall on a city. 
We just don't even understand that kind of stuff nowadays. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose from there and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Just a note on what's happening here at the end. Jabesh Gilead has to do with what happened in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. Uh, Saul, when things are looking promising, and this is actually one of his first battles that he has, that he wins over, and he protects the people of Jabesh Gilead. And the people of Jabesh Gilead do not forget this. Even though it's been some years and decades of time since uh, some of this that's happened here, they still remember. Uh, let me just note here, this is kind of another sermon at a different time, but this is kind of when people, I don't think this is so much uh, giving gratitude necessarily to Saul, but gratitude for what God has done. Sometimes, even when the person in the suit is not respectable, we still, we still respect the suit. Okay? Even when someone in the suit isn't acting the way they should, like Saul. Here, the fact of the matter is, is I think what David saw with Saul was that in all of this, that no, God was the one who put the crown on this guy. And God's the one who did a work even in protecting Jabesh Gilead. So we're going to give proper honor, not necessarily to the human, but to what God has done in this. And Saul is dead. Chapter 31 is a graveyard scene. But we cannot forget what happened at the end of chapter 30. Because chapter 30 ends with a sunrise. Now let me talk about this. The end of chapter 31, it's more a graveyard scene, and I would say it this way, where we look down. We're looking down and we're seeing this graveyard scene. We look down and we see, if you will, the tombstones. We see Saul dead. We see his three sons dead. We see the armor bearer dead. We see Saul's men dead. And in this scene, it's a sad scene. Because what we've learned over the last months is that God had something else on his heart that he would love to have seen take place. And so it makes the scene at the graveyard a really sad scene. It's a scene of unfulfillment. It's Saul unfulfilling, not, fulfill, not filling out God's call on his life. Everything was available to him. Everything was there. God had said, let's go do this. But Saul, yeah, we know the story. It's an unfulfilled story. It's a sad story. We see these deaths at the hand of the Philistines, the very ones that, uh, that Saul was raised up to protect people from taken out by unfulfilled in the fact that Saul never took out the Amalekites the way God had said. Saul really didn't carry out much of what God said. His life just got worse and worse and worse, it seemed, as time went on. And the only thing that we see that's in this graveyard that is a fulfillment of what God said might be said that God said he would die. And that's the scene. It's sad. It's sobering. Sometimes we have to stand here and take the scene in. Because I want the scene to grab our souls. There's something to look 
there's something to learn here looking down at this graveyard scene. It's a story of a man. It's the story of a leader who failed to defend and honor God. He was in a unique position. You, are not, you and I are not in a king over a country. But yet, there's the same principle where he, he failed to defend and honor God. His story started out with great hope and promise. But we come to this graveyard scene and there is sadness all around it. If I were to summarize Saul in a term, it would be this. Saul was self-absorbed. Saul was the story of self-absorbed. And friend, you and I can relate to that story. Because in ourselves, on our own, fact, we are naturally self-absorbed individuals. And so it would be easy to stand here at this graveyard and kind of diss Saul for being a loser but let's get the log out of our own eye here. How much of Saul is in me? How much of Saul is in you? If there were an epitaph or something written on Saul's tombstone, I think I would write a statement from one Maximus Decimus Meridius who went down on the gladiator floor, almost nose to nose with Emperor Commodus. After the emperor smacks talk, smack talks some wicked vile things. Maximus says, the time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. Man, I'm telling you, that should be scripture. <laughs> the time for honoring yourself, Saul. The time for honoring yourself, Doug. Put your name. The time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. And the scene upon which we look down in this graveyard preaches that. How much Saul is living in you and me? That's chapter 31. But you cannot finish 1 Samuel without the sunrise of the end of chapter 30. Because chapter 30 after David, David now 28, 29 years old. God has allowed him to go through adversity for years and years. It's just like, bless his heart. It just keeps coming. It's nonstop. And since he was 15 or 17, 19, 20, whatever that beginning age was for this 10, 13, 15 years, it has been adversity after adversity after adversity. 
And yet, even at times, some low points, I think, with David's life, where it's like, David, 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 don't, no, 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 no. And yet here we see at the end of chapter 30, David, it's like we get this first glimpse of this idea that David, David could be a king, who, uh, a prince who reigns for God's glory. And we see this contrast between David and this promise of what could be and where God has brought him and Saul of this sad situation of really where God has sovereignly brought him but how Saul has just so poorly responded out of it to it all because he's so blasted, self-absorbed. I love what Bill Arnold says about the closing of 1 Samuel. He says uh, this, you listen as I read it. He says, contemporary believers should read 1 Samuel 31 in a way that leads to hope for the future. He goes on and he says, you see, the coming of David's greater son has given us reason to hope that a new day will dawn in which death will no more claim its wretched price. You got to take the whole scene in here. It's been in the latter half of of the series, or latter half of Samuel. It's been about David, it's been about Saul, and it's been about God. And how they are interacting with God. And who God is and how God interacts with them. And we see this one story with Saul. And it breaks our heart. And it's like, no God, not that in me. Go, no God, not that in us. And we see this story of David. Oh, not perfect by any means. Not perfect by any means. But we see this David and it's like, I want more of that, God. I want more of that in me. I want more of that in us. And we stand here in his graveyard and... And we look down and we see tragedy. But friend, I don't want us to get stuck and that's not what the idea of the text is supposed to. It leaves us with this tension. It leaves us like David in this sunrise and, and, and Saul in this despair. And it's like, what's coming? What's coming? And I would say this. So what's coming in your life from here? I would ask as we finish this book that it kind of leaves like a dot, dot, dot for our lives. Like, so what is, am I from here? And know this, maybe there's been tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy in your life or you having caused tragedy in your life. Know this, dot, 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 there's sunrise through Christ. Where do you want to look? Where do you want to get your soul stuck? Stuck in victimization? Or stuck in the redemption work of Jesus? Closing question. Where are you headed? There's a story yet to unfold for me and for you. And you and I have every opportunity to unfold it looking up. Periodic glances down. 
to keep ourselves rooted. But looking up. Saul was the example of eyes stuck down. I might say it this way. I've heard it termed this way. Saul was the example of someone that was all about dating Jesus. In other words, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus is pretty cool, and I want to hang out with him. You know, and when the Jesus thing works out for me, and when Jesus meets my expectations, well, then I'll continue this thing. But at the moment where Jesus doesn't meet my expectations or meet what I would like to see happen, you know what? I'm going on to someone new. Uh, that's, that's dating Jesus. Uh, that's really what Saul's life looked like. Saul would kind of have this come back to the Lord moment here and there, but it always had this terminology that we see in, this, in the text that it's like, but, but uh, I repent of that, but, but Samuel, uh, please make me look good in front of the people. Like, what? David, there's just a story here. It's not about the praise of David, but we put ourselves in the place where life is full of adversity. And Saul is the example of becoming self-absorbed. David is an example of becoming someone who's absorbed in Christ. Not perfect. But leaning in and absorbing in. His life was not about convenience. We've learned that over the last few months. His life was about commitment. Not convenience, it was about commitment. His life was not about the moment. Goodness sakes, see this 10, 13, 15 years and he's still not sitting on the throne that God had told him about. And yet, it's not about the moment, it's about the long term. It's not about what David thought, it's about what God said well, I think this, well, I think that, well, I think this about politics, I think that about society, I think this about gender, I think that about, that about, this about. Hey, here's the fact of the matter on the table. Who's God's, who is God's word, you or God? Because when it really comes down to it, it's all about who God is and what God says, and I'm there. That's what we're called to be. David, not, David was not about easy. David was about eternity. And friend, if this life has so enthralled you, might I throw a warning out? Man, this is going to sound harsh. But a graveyard is ahead. And then what? straight on the table. I've had successes in life. I've done the whole uh, success in business and riches thing. I've been there, done that. I'm just telling you, friend. It's momentary. There's nothing cooler, there's nothing more awesome, there's nothing more wonderful, there's nothing more satisfying. Than enduring with the Lord.
dot, dot, dot. What's going to be your story from here? Lord, this is a good place for us to be here right now. A place for us to have been, I think, and I pray, challenged as well as encouraged, given direction from your word out of the end of the first Samuel. This, this idea of dot, 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 what now? Where is this going to go? And God, I pray that that would be the tension that sits on our hearts right now as well. Because we live in a broken graveyard world. And our tendency is to want to make this broken place heaven and fully satisfying. But it's not. I mean, you created it and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and we rejoice in the opportunity. But we need to understand the whole story. And that includes one day we will be in a graveyard and we will see you face to face. And not only is it about a future story for us and, and where we are at in the grand story of what you are doing, but it is also a present story. And Lord, next week and next month and this rest of this year, where are we going to place our eyes? Lord, in this room, there have to be people right now that are discouraged and hurting and just having a hard time. I just pray in their adversity that eyes would be looking to you. It doesn't remove it all. It doesn't make it easy. But there is hope and power and promise in the work of Christ. God, I pray maybe there's someone in this room who doesn't really even know what it really means to have a living, breathing relationship with you. Frankly, maybe they've just been dating you. And it's time for them to enter into a covenant relationship with you by driving the stake in the ground and receiving Christ as their Savior and picking up their cross and following after you. Lord, if someone has questions, I pray that they would come to you, that they would ask others. God, we're all in a place of desperate need of the sunrise. And so we lean into you. In Christ's name, amen.